Well, I want to invite you to grab your copy of God's Word this morning. Join me once again in the book of Mark. We took a break last week for Vision Sunday, but we are diving back into the Gospel of Mark this morning. If you're new to North River Church, I want you to know that each week as we gather together, we open God's Word. We are typically working through a book of the Bible verse by verse, and so we find ourselves in Mark chapter 2 this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12 in a message entitled, Whatever It Takes. Whatever It Takes. Let me ask you this. If your life was on the line, would you be willing to do whatever it takes to live? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Back in 2003, there was a guy by the name of Aaron Ralston. He was a mountaineer, he hiked all the time, and he found himself on April the 26th of 2003 in Blue John Canyon in Utah. He was an experienced climber, and so he headed into this canyon and is making his way down the canyon to get to the floor so that he could hike out from there. And in just a moment, everything changed. The boulder that he was climbing over shifted on him. And it ended up pinning his right wrist up against the canyon wall. And he could not move. He was there for hours thinking, maybe someone will come and find me. Hours turned into days. And five days in, as he is pinned to the wall, he had all but given up hope. And then it hit him. If he could simply get his arm Out of that situation, he may be able to live. He was an engineer, so he knew that there were a few things that had to take place. First, he needed to break his bone, and so he started there. He snapped the bone in his arm. Some of you are just now, you're just cringing inside. You know where this is going. He snapped the bone in his arm with enough force that it broke cleanly. And then he took out a pocket knife. And he amputated his own arm off. After he finished that, he was still trapped in the canyon And so he began descending down in the canyon. In fact, he still had a rappel of 65 feet to go down. And then he had a seven-mile hike to get where he needed to go to call for help. And he survived. And they asked him on the back end of it, how did you do that? How did you snap your arm? How did you amputate your own arm? How did you do that? And he said this, I realized I would have to do whatever it takes if I wanted to live. The passage that we're going to look at this morning is one of my favorite in Mark's gospel. 
It's a passage that highlights the reality of a group of friends being willing to do whatever it takes to bring their friend to Jesus. And so this morning, as we look at the text, I want to encourage you to write down these two parallel passages. So in your time with the Lord over the course of this next week, you can spend some time working through these passages. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. And Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through verse 26. Luke 5, 17 through 26. I want to read for us Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and we'll walk back through it together this morning. This is God's word. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let the bed down on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Father, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes that we would be able to see, that you would open our ears that we would be able to hear, and that you would open our hearts and our minds that we would be ready to respond to your word and to your spirit. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. As we look at the text this morning, you'll see this in your handout, this main idea that will frame our time together in God's Word this morning. It's this truth, we must be willing to do whatever it takes to bring people to Jesus because we know that He is the only one who can transform their lives. You see, the truth is, if we believe Jesus is the only one who can transform people's lives, then we should be willing to do whatever it takes to bring people to Jesus. As we begin to look at this passage of Scripture this morning, you'll see on the screen an image that's going to come up. 
this is part of the excavation of the area where Peter's house, which is what we're going to talk about this morning, the location where this miracle took place. In fact, what you see up on the screen is a fifth century ruins of a church that was built over the top of where Peter's house was. And back in 1968, archaeologists, as they began to excavate in this area, they began to go even deeper into what was a room that they found that had multiple rooms attached to it and then a courtyard out in front of it. And so they have found what they believe is the location of where this event took place. After it was Peter's house, it ultimately turned into a location where the local church would gather there in Capernaum. And then later in the centuries, it was built upon where you see the ruins here. There was a church that was located there in that location. And so notice as we begin in verse 1, Jesus is coming back to Capernaum. Remember, there was so much that had happened on the back end of Jesus' ministry, what he had done in the latter part of chapter 1, that he had to venture out into the wilderness because so many people were coming to him. He had healed people. He had cast out demons. And so at this point, people wanted to get close to Jesus. We've said not necessarily because they wanted Jesus, but because they wanted what Jesus could do for them. But at this point, Jesus has ventured back into Capernaum, into this city that was on the Sea of Galilee, and he goes to what's described as his home. And we know that it's not Jesus' actual home, but he had decided in Capernaum that he would live in the location of where Peter had a home. And so he's there. I can no doubt think that he is thinking, man, maybe things will settle down just a little bit. And verse 2 tells us that is not the case. It says, many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Remember that that was Jesus' mission at the beginning. Remember that he had said, I came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of heaven. I came to preach to you. He didn't come primarily to heal. He came primarily to declare the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And yet, people were everywhere around him. So you begin to notice in verses 3 through verse 5, I want you to notice this radical commitment of a group of friends. Verse 3, they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So catch this picture in your mind. There's this home and it is absolutely filled. It's filled so much that people are gathered even in the courtyard outside of it so that there was no way even to get into the front door of the home. Jesus is inside the home and he is preaching the good news of the kingdom to all who are gathered there. And these four men come bringing on a mat their friend who is paralyzed. And in their minds, they're thinking, if we can just get him to Jesus, maybe Jesus will heal him. It says that they could not get near 
because of the crowd in verse 4. So they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Just imagine if you were in church this morning, Pastor Michael's preaching, and all of a sudden the ceiling starts opening up. And someone starts being let down in front of me right here. That would be a bit odd, wouldn't it? But that's exactly the scene that's described with Jesus in this moment. These friends were so committed to get their paralyzed friend in front of Jesus that they would not take no for an answer. That they carried him to where Jesus was They could not get in the room where he was, so they go up the steps to the side of the house. They would carry them up to the rooftop, and they rip open the roof, and then they lower their friend down in front of Jesus. Teenagers, just pause here for a second. I want to encourage you with something. Find friends like that. That's the kind of friend that you want. Who is willing to do whatever it takes to get you the help that you need? That's what these friends were willing to do, to put their friend in front of Jesus. There's been a couple of moments in my life that I had to make a decision whether or not I was going to do whatever it took to accomplish something. My youngest daughter was sick when she was a baby, and my wife is par excellence at making sure that kids are taken care of when they're sick. I don't have a whole lot of sympathy. So after a few days of my wife waking up in the middle of the night, making sure that our youngest daughter had the medicine that she needed to help bring her fever down, she, she's like, listen, it's your turn. 2 a.m., you need to set your alarm, you need to wake up, and you need to give her the medicine that she needs, the Tylenol. It's like, perfect, I got this. Wake up, go in, give her the medicine, and then as I'm walking back down the hallway to come into the bedroom, I started thinking, how much medicine did I just give her? I walk in the bedroom. My wife says, everything okay? I said, "Mm, I'm not sure. She said, what are you talking about? I said, I don't know how much medicine I gave Leah. She said, what do you mean? Which is the only right response in that moment. I said, I'm not really sure. So we end up going back into the bathroom where the medicine is, and I realized in that moment that I had given her 10 times the amount of Tylenol that I was supposed to give her. Not only do I just feel like a terrible father in that moment, but then I think, I've got to take her to the emergency room. So load up, we drive to the emergency room, we get out, we walk in, and then in my mind I'm thinking, now I'm going to have to tell these people that I'm an idiot. (laughs) And so we walk in and The intake person brings us in and she says, "Uh, tell me what the problem is tonight. And I said, I'm an idiot. I'm the problem. And she just kind of looks at me weird and she says, I don't understand what happened. 
So I explained to her, and her facial expression towards me went to absolute disgust. Like, how could you, as a good dad, and in my mind, I'm thinking, they're going to call the police. They're going to come, and I'm going to go. This is a bad situation. So, but I was willing to do whatever it took to get her the help that she needed. And so we're sitting in the waiting room, and then Janie calls me on the phone. And she has poison control on the other line. And the lady from poison control says, Mr. Kennedy, you're not an idiot. She was like, thank you. You don't need to be at the emergency room. You need to go home. She's going to be fine. And then in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I'm not paying that copay at the emergency room. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get out of here. So I have to go back by the same lady, church. And I said, she's fine. We're good. Poison control said I could go home. And her look of disgust went about a thousand times worse. But I was willing to do whatever it took to get out of there. You know, it's interesting that this group of friends was willing to do whatever it took to bring their friend to Jesus, believing that Jesus could heal him. Notice in verse 5, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Let me ask you this question this morning. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to bring people to Jesus? The people that you know in your sphere of influence that do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, are you willing to do whatever it takes to bring them to Jesus, to look at them with compassion in your heart and to say the only hope that they have is for me to bring them to Jesus? Parents, I want to challenge you this morning. Your children need you to have that mindset when it comes to their relationship with Jesus Christ. Parents, that you are willing to do whatever it takes to bring your kids to Jesus. Say, Pastor, our schedule is just so busy. Are you willing to do whatever it takes? to make sure that they are here on Sundays and plugged into the life of North River Church so that they can be invested in spiritually here. Are you willing to do whatever it takes? You say, we, we live so far away, it's a long drive. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to bring your kids to Jesus? You say, we got travel ball. And this is going to hurt a little bit. But I just want to press here for a moment. One day your kid will not play ball. But one day they will stand before Jesus. And they will have to give an account for their life. Moms, dads, I want to beg you. Do not sacrifice your kids' lives spiritually on the altar of them being a good ball player because I can tell you from personal experience, you will throw your last ball one day and then you will live the rest of your life. I want to encourage you as you go in the workplace tomorrow, 
that there are people who need Jesus around you? Will you do whatever it takes to bring them to Jesus? As a church family, as we shared with you last week, the vision for us moving forward, the vision for reaching this community for the cause of Jesus Christ. Church family, that question lands at our doorstep. Are we willing to do whatever it takes to reach this community for Jesus Christ? My hope and my prayer is that we would be able to answer that in the affirmative. Yes, like these four friends, we are willing to bring people to Jesus, whatever it takes. Notice with me in verses 6 through verse 11. Not only did we see the radical commitment of these friends in verse 1 through 5, but we see the religious objections that come forward in verses 6 through 11. I just got to say to you, every party has a pooper. (laughs) Don't be the party pooper. Notice what happens in verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there. Remember, we encountered them previous in chapter 1. These were the PhDs in theology of the day. These were the religious leaders of the day. The scribes are watching this take place. And notice in verse 6, they are questioning in their hearts. And notice beginning in verse 7 what they say. Why does this man speak like this? Notice secondly, he is blaspheming. Notice the question. Thirdly, who can forgive sins but God alone? They have already witnessed up until this point Jesus work in powerful ways. Jesus teach with authority that they never had. They have already seen the crowds mesmerized by him. They've been wowed by Jesus. But in this moment, as Jesus looks at this paralyzed man and says to him, son, your sins are forgiven, the scribes sit back in this moment and say, you can't do that. That's wrong. You're putting yourself in the place of God. You're not allowed to do that. That's punishable by death. I shared with you the first week that Mark's aim in this gospel account of Jesus' life and his ministry is to make clear two things. One, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior that was coming into the world. And two, that he is the Son of God. Jesus is. God in the flesh. These religious leaders don't understand that reality. They refuse to recognize who Jesus is. They sit back and they question. Notice, not out loud. Where did they question? In their hearts. One of the most difficult things to do is to drive when you have a teenager that has their learner's permit. 
Because what's absolutely hilarious is that every single thing that you do wrong, they chirp from the passenger seat. You know you're speeding? You didn't turn your blinker on. You didn't come to a complete stop. You look over and you think, I've been driving twice as long as you've been alive. But the scribes are looking at Jesus in this moment. They're saying, you can't do that. You can't say that. I love this. Verse 8, Jesus immediately perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. Do you see that? They haven't vocalized this at all. It was simply in their heart. And Jesus is perceiving in his spirit. Jesus knows what they're thinking. Jesus knows what's going on in their heart in this moment. So notice what Jesus says to them. Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Jesus puts before them two questions. Is it easier for me to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or is it easier for me to say to this paralyzed man, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Kind of a trick question. Because in one sense, you look and think, well, he could say that his sins are forgiven, but we don't really know if that actually happened. So maybe it's easier for him to say that because we wouldn't be able to see it. But what you have to know is that the scribes are looking at this and saying, for you to claim that you can forgive this man's sins means that you are claiming to be God because only God is able to forgive sin. Then you look at the flip side and say, well, if... He says to him, rise and take up your bed and walk. If the man does it, that's a pretty big deal. So Jesus, in this moment, puts it before the scribes. Because here's what Jesus is accomplishing in this text. Proving that he is the Messiah, the Savior. He is the Son of God. You may have come in this morning, and for you, you are not yet a follower of Jesus, and I want to challenge you to ask the question this morning, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Because if he is the Savior, if he is the Son of God, he is your only hope this morning to be forgiven of your sins and brought into a right relationship with your heavenly Father. Notice that Jesus says in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus, in this moment, just threw down the gauntlet in front 
of the scribes. He says, so that you'll know that I can forgive sins. So that you'll know that I am the Son of Man, which was the promise in the Old Testament is that the Son of Man would come. The Son of Man would be the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. So that you would know that I am God in the flesh, able to forgive sins. I tell this man, rise, take up your bed, and walk out of here. As we look at this, we cannot help but be reminded this morning of the reality of who Jesus Christ is. He is the only one who has the authority to forgive sin. He is the only one who can transform a person's life. We see it in the text this morning, and if you're a follower of Jesus here, you've seen that in your own life as well. Why do we bring people to Jesus? Because we know he is the only hope for their lives being transformed. So what happens? Verse 12. He rose. This paralyzed man rose. And he immediately picked up his bed. And he went out before them all. Imagine if you were there watching this, and you see the sea of people gathered just part, and this once paralyzed man walk out. How do the people respond? It says that they were all amazed. They were blown away by what Jesus had done. Not only that, it says that they glorified God. And they said, we never saw anything like this. I love that. Because the reality is for us whose lives have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that same thing is true of us. And as we see people's lives come into North River Church and be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're able to sit back and look and be amazed at what God is doing and glorify him above all else and say things like, we, we've never seen things like that before. I want you to notice that over the last number of years as a church family, we have seen God do things that we would have never dreamed possible. And my prayer for us is that we would continue to see that and we would continue to sit back in amazement and we would continue to glorify the Lord and we would continue to say things like, we've just never seen things like that happen before. My hope and my prayer is that that is what we experience as a church family and as individual believers gathered together. A few years back, we were able to head out to visit Yosemite National Park. And there's, as you are driving through Yosemite, there's a spot that they call Tunnel View. 
You go through this tunnel, and on the other end, you see Yosemite Valley open up before you. It's one of the most breathtaking, amazing scenes that I've ever seen in my life. It just takes your breath away. And you just sit back in amazement, and you look at it, and you think, wow, God, God created that. God put that there. And we just get to sit back and look and go, wow. I've never seen anything like this before. That's what happened in the text. As this man's life was transformed by Jesus, and my prayer is that that's what continues to happen as we bring people to Jesus through the ministry of North River Church. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me this morning. As we transition to this time of response and then we have an opportunity to celebrate communion together this morning to remember Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. My hope and my prayer is that if you have come in this morning and you don't have yet a relationship with Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of salvation for you that you would realize who Jesus is, and that you would respond by faith, trusting him alone as your savior. If that's a step that you need to take, we would love to help you take that step. Maybe a friend brought you this morning, and you simply want to ask them as you leave today, what does it look like to take that step? If you're already a believer this morning, as we reflect in just a moment, as we partake of the bread and the cup, I want to encourage you to think about the person that brought you to Jesus and make the commitment this morning that you'll do whatever it takes to bring other people to Jesus because he is the only one who can transform their lives. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We ask that you work in it and through it in our lives this morning for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You'd stand this morning. So we have an opportunity to prepare our hearts as we sing. I want to encourage you to reflect on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's transformed your life this morning.